listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and leader of the firm's inbound tax practice. We're glad to have you join us. Enjoy the program. One of the biggest challenges facing employers in 2020 is managing remote workplace issues, both locating personnel, if possible, somewhere other than the traditional office setting, and benching otherwise mobile workforces, especially in the executive ranks. Tax issues are something of the tail of the dog, but nonetheless, tails can still knock stuff off your coffee table. And in this episode, we'll be discussing various aspects of the tax tail. Joining me today are Courtney Wallace, my co-host and international tax principal from KPMG's Detroit office, Steve Wirtz, an international tax partner from KPMG LA, Jeff Burns, a state and local tax partner based out of Chicago, and Chris Roberts, an international tax partner hailing from KPMG UK. Thanks, Kim. And I'm not sure any of us, including the regulators, anticipated we would still be talking about work from home nine months later. And with the continued uncertainty, we really are facing a new normal. I agree. And moving into the new normal, whatever that looks like, isn't going to be quick, easy, or inexpensive. Perhaps we can start with you, Steve. Can you give us a brief rundown of what you think companies are facing from the U.S. international tax perspective? Sure. Thanks, Kim. Non-U.S. corporations with executives or other employees in the U.S. are dealing with the possibility of having a U.S. trader business or a PE in the U.S. to the extent that they have people in the U.S. longer than they otherwise would be. The IRS has issued some guidance both for employees themselves and for companies around taxable presence. And what it provides is a 60-day grace period where companies can have employees in the U.S. and not count the activities performed during that time towards whether they have a U.S. trader business or a permanent establishment. There are multiple requirements to benefit from those provisions. So it's not quite as easy as saying, here's 60 days, this is my grace period, and I'm done. There has to be some sort of travel restriction that prevents the person from leaving the U.S. And this also has to be an activity that would be performed outside the U.S. absent that travel restriction. So documentation around those concepts are going to be very important. 60 days sounds like a lot if you're thinking, oh, well, it's March and we're going to be back to work by June. It doesn't sound like so much when you're sitting here at the end of the year. Have you heard any rumors about additional relief? I haven't. And one of the issues with this is that it's not just 60 days from when this guidance was issued. But there's actually a window between February 1 and April 1 of 2020. The 60-day period has to start sometime within that window. We're already outside of 60 days from the end of that window. There hasn't been any updated guidance. I do think that people at the very beginning thought, okay, well, we're just going to hunker down and do what we need to stay safe. But I think we can't just let everything come to a complete standstill for goodness knows how long. 
that's exactly right. And so companies are considering implementing secondment arrangements because we think that our executive that is still either stuck in the U.S. or a U.S.-based executive that is stuck somewhere outside the U.S., they're going to have to be there for the foreseeable future. It's not just a temporary situation anymore. That can work just fine. But the issue that still comes up is even if this employee is seconded to a subsidiary in the particular country where they're sitting, if they're doing the business of the U.S. parent, you still do have the possibility of creating either a fixed place of business or a, an agent PE. So there has to be not only a secondment, but some guidelines around what can and can't be done during this period. Maybe what you do is an employee-only assignment company of some sort so that you create a legal entity barrier between that executive or whoever's performing services and the rest of the operating company revenues. Yeah, I think that's right. You still do have dependent agency risk if that person is in the particular country negotiating concluding contracts. That's where probably the bigger risk is. But even with dependent agent, you have to have a habitual exercise of your authority. Yeah, that's that's right. And if you're not already filing an 1120F, you should definitely be putting that on the list for this year. I guess I have just two other quick points. If you have employees of your CFCs that are stuck in another country or maybe even stuck in the U.S., the CFC is earning income associated with services that those employees are performing outside of the country, that's going to be foreign-based company services income, which could be good or bad, depending on whether you prefer to be in subpart F versus guilty from a foreign tax credit standpoint. But it's definitely something that will be new in your structure. If you have what are normally U.S. employees, employees of the U.S. company, but they have gone back home somewhere outside the U.S. and so you second those people to your CFCs wherever they're located uh, and now U.S. companies paying a service fee for the work that they're doing but you suddenly have beat payment and if it's one person maybe that's not that material if you have a significant number that are in that situation the number could become more material. I would say that source becomes a very big issue especially in the services environment, not only if you have folks that are sitting in the U.S., but if you're paying third-party service providers, particularly the foreign ones, you're going to want a geographic-specific invoice. Where did you perform the services? Then you have a withholding obligation that maybe you didn't have before. It's good to understand not only where your people are, but where your contractors are sitting. Kim, I think these questions have been coming up more and more. And as I was listening to your discussion, it, it seems like we've got both inbound issues, kind of folks coming to the U.S. We've got outbound issues. We've got treaty countries, non-treaty countries. So the requirements are all different. And we've got a number of well-meaning companies and HR departments who are trying to be really flexible. So it just sounds a little bit like a perfect storm. And if we shift a little bit, Jeff Burns, does that mean anything for you from a state and local perspective? Yeah, I think it's a couple of different concepts. The states have done similar things where they've tried to provide some relief 
if you have people that are remote workers and they're in a jurisdiction that you're not in before, Nexus is not going to be attributed to the taxpayer right away. That'll be lifted once a government order is lifted. And that becomes a hard thing to interpret as we keep kind of moving back and forth between government orders, trending more towards closing versus opening up. And I have to believe at some point the states are going to say, enough's enough. We're entering a new year. Companies are going to start to be developing policies around where people can be and where they can work. You're going to have to factor in Nexus as a potential risk for that. The second component when you think about it is, from a state perspective, there's always been concern that a non-U.S. entity is going to have Nexus at the state level because there's going to be workers signed to that particular entity in the United States. And so I think that also adds complexity to it as well as the fact that a lot of states don't follow treaties. The global movement of people at the state level is is creating quite a bit of disruption as well. Is it possible, Jeff, that if a state is piggybacking off the federal taxable income, that even if you have taxable nexus within the state, for income tax purposes, you may still be okay because the taxable income is zero? You know, I would say by and large that may be true. But remember, we still live in a world at the state level where if services are being provided or there's a sale of an intangible, a lot of the states have cost of performance rules versus market-based sourcing. So you really could end up in a situation where not only do you have taxable income from a state perspective, but you may have some sourcing of revenues in a particular jurisdiction because someone's actually physically working in that jurisdiction. So that could cause some real income tax leakage. And the other thing I'll say is it's been a very interesting journey to watch some of these states go combined reporting, like the New Jersey's of the world, the Kentucky's of the world, where they're almost saying we're a water's edge, right? So we're just U.S. filings. But to the extent there's some non-U.S. transactions at a certain level, those non-U.S. entities may be brought into the group. And so you've got this perfect storm of legislation around activities in the United States and how a state may tax it relative to the combined group, relative to work from anywhere. Wayfair, of course, has caused an, an additional encumbrance of tax potential filing and liability. So there's a lot that's happening that's kind of come to this cross-section for state tax purposes that I think companies really need to start understanding their profile a lot better. Right. And I imagine your statutory auditors might be asking these questions as well, right? So that documentation, I think, of the different people, their positions, what they're doing is going to be real important. When I talk about state, I think about it two ways. One is the tax return itself. And so maybe the cash taxes aren't that material or or aren't that meaningful, but then what does it do to your deferreds? And do you have an issue from a financial statement perspective? And so I think you have to look at both because state statutory rates have grown considerably over the last few years. Uh, If you have a big base of deferreds, that can provide some real meaningful impact to the financial statements. So again, it's, it's important to think about not only what's the current cash tax issue, but what is my future financial statement position and how does that impact the organization? Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. All right. So, Chris, 
The OECD has made some noises about this too, but I don't remember anything particularly concrete or universal coming out of it. Yeah, I don't think there's anything kind of concrete. I think what you're seeing is a lot of guidance put out by tax authorities, both around permanent establishment and also around central management and control, where you have employees not in their normal place of work or not following their normal patterns. We saw quite a degree of flexibility at the start. Tax authorities, particularly the UK, saying we see this as an exceptional issue, recognise that the fact that you have a board meeting in the UK or the fact that you have people in the UK when they you know, ordinarily wouldn't be doesn't automatically mean that you have an issue that means you have to report something. But as COVID drags on, as we go into new phases of lockdown, these things kind of become the new normal. And I think we won't see a change in guidance or approach. I think we'll just see tax authorities look at it and say, look, based on the facts, this isn't a temporary thing that's happening. This has a degree of permanence. It has gone on for more than six months. You start paying for the home office. Your company starts saying you must work from home. You can't travel in. It may not be big numbers from a tax perspective. You know, if it's a, a salesperson that happens to be, you know, having to stay at home in Germany when normally they've been traveling around Europe all the time. But if your structure relies on substance in particular jurisdictions, then you need to take a proactive approach otherwise i think you'll end up in hot water what i would worry about is the tax authority saying it's now the new normal you've decided to stick with this as your paradigm now let's go back and figure out when you started i'm just really afraid that the reach back would put at risk march 2020 even if you thought that it was temporary at that point that is in fact when you started yeah, I think they'd have some degree of flexibility around it. Well, you'd hope they would, but whether they would or not is another <laughs> matter. And so I can see tax authorities looking at this and saying, yes, there was a shock in March. Yes, there's some temporary respite there. But, you know, kind of is this indicative of what was kind of always happening in the past? I can see, you know, an element of, let's say, light touch review where it's issues around does it create a sales PE where it's maybe just a small amount of revenue and you can argue it is temporary. But if you've purposefully implemented a structure that requires substance in jurisdictions, then I can see the tax authorities taking a more proactive approach on that. I worry about management and control as well. I wonder what happens if you have directors from goodness knows where. There's a lot of flying around to get to board meetings. When do we start worrying about where companies manage and control? Do you end up with companies that are in dual residence situations? In the absence of any specific rules or guidance from tax authorities, then you do end up needing to consider when your company becomes resident in another territory. Companies, I think, today should be understanding what are the consequences of our residents being challenged, what decisions need to be made. Should I take that person in the UK or that person in Germany off the board of that mm-hmm. business? Should I appoint somebody locally? Mm-hmm. What companies should be doing is understanding what are their exposures and how do they manage them, not just from a direct tax perspective, but also from an indirect tax perspective and an employment tax perspective as well. If you have people long-term in other countries where they're not employed, where they don't pay social security, where they don't pay local taxes because of residence or otherwise, how do all of these things come together? Because the PE, the corporate PE risk might be quite low, but the employment tax costs associated with that and the indirect 
issues associated with that can be a lot bigger. There's been articles in the UK press about this, of some of the banks telling all of their employees that went to their homes in the south of France to come back to the UK or they can pay the incremental taxes themselves. <laughs> oh, you know, so I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I, I guess that kind of comes back to the understand what your risks and exposures are as a business. Are you willing to bear those costs? Where do you draw your line as an organization because the cost is unacceptable? Chris, can you talk a little bit more about the VAT and indirect challenges folks might be coming up against? I know enough about that to know that that is a dangerous spot and don't fall on the wrong side of it. Yeah, so you know, it depends on what the model is and where people are, but the definition of a presence for VAT purposes is ordinarily a bit lower than it is for corporate tax purposes. So if you have the technical resources in a territory, that can be enough in some occasions to give a VAT presence. Now, ultimately, if you're a fully taxable business, so if you're not financial services, you would expect that to be a flow-through cost to you, but the penalties for getting it wrong for not registering on time when percentage of sales can be quite large. Once you start going into the VAT, I feel like you really can't turn that on overnight. That if you're going to be doing VAT registration and compliance and you have more than a small handful of customers, you're going to have to start putting in place more mechanisms and systems. It's certainly not something you can turn on or off overnight. Whenever you speak to clients about changing anything in relation to VAT, the blood drains from their faces because <laughs> they know it'll cost them an arm and a leg to make that change. So, you know, you should think about other different ways to manage this. But I guess you've got COVID, you've got Brexit, you've got other changes happening within indirect taxes across Europe as well. And this is just another one of those things that needs to be factored in. We've all lived through what I'll call the implementation of Wayfair uh, from a sales and use tax perspective. If you're going to look at it from an international perspective for indirect, you most certainly should be looking at the impact on the U.S. indirect tax side as well. Speaking of Wayfair, one of the questions we always get is, I'm a non-U.S. company. This doesn't apply to me. Isn't that right? <laughs> I would say that couldn't be further from the truth. These standards from an indirect tax perspective are much different than from a corporate income tax perspective. And so now you're in a situation where because of Wayfair, because it is law of the land, you, know, you could have more exposure, especially in this work from anywhere environment. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that while the world has gotten much smaller in many different ways, it has also gotten much more complicated. The last thing on our minds perhaps has been tax, but at some point we will all need to focus on that. And I think sooner rather than later is probably the best answer. In the meantime, thanks everyone for joining us. Stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to speaking to you next time.